Good morning, everybody. Uh, we'll pass out a thesaurus next time we sing that song, just so we can uh, know what all those words mean, or a, a dictionary, I should say. Uh, our key scripture this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 16, verses 19 through 24 and 33. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there today, uh, and I'll be reading those here for you this morning. John, chapter 16, verses 19 through 24 and 33. <clears throat> Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. Jesus had been talking to his disciples, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. And then Jesus says at the end, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I wanna just repeat this one line here for you this morning because I, I, I think it is so important. Jesus said, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Those are some of the most powerful words that I think Jesus perhaps ever said to his disciples. And in the immediate context of these words, Jesus knew that his disciples were going to see him uh, be arrested and led to the cross, that he knew that, that they were going to face this terrifying, awful experience that lay in front of all of them. And he knew that this experience for them was going to be overwhelming. This, this sorrow, this grief, this awful tragedy that they were going to have to face was going to wash over them. But he knew something else. He knew something really powerful, and he knew this, that their grief would only be temporary. Because on the other side of their grief, on the other side of their loss, there would be joy. That they will rejoice and no one will take their joy away. So why does he know? What does he know? It's because Jesus knows that on the other side of the cross, of this unimaginably awful thing, there is an empty tomb. He knows that on the other side of failure, there is redemption. On the other side of sin, there is forgiveness. On the other side of this broken people, there is a savior. And this message that Jesus gave to his disciples is not even about what they would immediately face ultimately because this message that he gives to them that right now you have grief but one day you will have joy is the message of the gospel. That God 
loved the world so much that he sent his son here to live with us, to love us, and to die for us. That through the sacrifice of Jesus that we would have everlasting life. That our sorrow will turn to joy and it is a joy that no one can take away from us because our sin is remembered no more. Death is defeated. God has made a way for us. And I'm reminded powerfully of this message this weekend. So so many of us came together yesterday to celebrate Jerry's life. I'm reminded of how, towards the end of Jerry's life, how difficult it was for her to get around, how her body was failing, how much pain she was in, but that now she is with God, and that there is no more pain or suffering or hurt. Listen, sometimes, you know, our eyes are so short-sighted to the hurt and the pain and the things that we feel. Sometimes things are overwhelming and threaten to drag us under. But the message of the gospel says this, now may be your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one can take away your joy. Amen? All right. <clears throat> well, um, I I hope that you have uh, enjoyed uh, our study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I know that I said last week that uh, it was going. I'm saying uh a lot right now, Randy. I'm saying uh a lot. Uh, there it is again. What's the matter with me today? We, today is our last uh, lesson from the book of John uh, versus Kali. <laughs> okay, so let me give you a little background on what's happening to me right now. We were having dinner with Randy and Debbie, and we started talking about things that we do when, when we speak and things that become like mannerisms and things that you say like that. So I, I asked them not to identify any of my mannerisms or, or things that I say too much just because I don't want to know. Because once you know what it is, then you're like trying not to say it or do it. Uh, so now I'm saying, uh, and every time I say, uh, which I, I don't know that I normally say that a lot, but now it's in my head. Like it's, it's stuck there. This is, this is trouble. This is trouble. So we spent the last several weeks going through John 14 through 16, studying the Holy Spirit. Today is our last lesson from this, uh, this section. And uh, there's, there is so much that we have seen and, and read about through this time. And I really wanted us to look at the last part, even though it's not uh, directly about the Holy Spirit itself. But the things that Jesus says here in the last part of John really the end of John chapter 16 and into verse 17 are, are, are such important things that I felt like we needed to visit this before we move on. Next week, we, we're going to start Advent. 
uh, and looking and talking about the birth of Jesus and, and looking forward to his return. And it's always just a, it's always a great time of year for all of those different things. But before we go there, today we're going we're gonna to look at the, the end of John 16, 17. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there this morning. That's where we're going to be today. Um, there are such, I was, th- I was thinking as I was, as I was studying this passage this week and, and we've spent all this time in it. This is our 11th, uh, lesson from these three or four chapters. And, and I, and I sort of wondered if, if someone, if you think about some of the meaningful and good conversations that you've had in your life, uh, what would it be like to, to read a transcript of those conversations. If, if someone had recorded uh, something that, that was really important to you or, or a conversation that you had had with someone, what would it be like to go back and look at that? Uh, because that's really what we're seeing in these chapters. Uh, Jesus having these last really important moments with his disciples, and it's a conversation that he's having with them. So often, you know, we at least for me, when I read the teachings of Jesus, when I read what he's saying, I, I view him kind of, kind of like he's a preacher. And, and that, and because in a lot of ways, I mean, we know he's a teacher, we know he's a rabbi, but as if, as if he's just speaking at people sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of how I see him. And that's really the wrong context for this conversation. Because this conversation that Jesus is having is with these men that he has lived with um, all this time for, for three years. He's lived with them. They've eaten their meals together. They've, they have lived life together. And even though he's Jesus and they're the disciples, this moment that we have been able to look on is a really intimate moment between the best of friends, and so all of these things that Jesus has been telling them comes from this place of really this depth of relationship that he has with them. And again, it's been a really long journey to Jerusalem, and a lot has happened before we even got to this conversation. They had shared the Last Supper. Jesus had washed their feet. Peter had argued with with Jesus about these things. Jesus predicted that Judas would betray him. Judas left. And then Jesus predicted that, that Peter would deny him. And all of this has been the precursor to these conversations. And then in chapter 14, Jesus launched into the conversation that he really wanted to have, telling them about the Holy Spirit that was going to come. And he assured them of God's love for them, that he was on their side. And then, as you know, he, he said that the, the helper, the paraclete, would come, and it would be the presence of God living with them. Um, he will be just what Jesus has been for them, the same kind of helper, just in a different form. Uh, they won't be alone. They're not going to be left as orphans. The helper will teach them and help them to remember everything that Jesus said. He will, the helper will testify to them and to the world, and and and. The Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and change people's hearts and minds. So after he had told them about all these things, and he's, and he's wrapped it up and he, and about the Holy Spirit, um, told them all that would happen, he kind of returns back to business at hand. Uh, so I want us to think for a second about the people in the room and about this relationship. And I know that we've talked about this before, but let's, let's try to focus on this for a second. 
this is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. This is the night that his whole life and the life of everyone is going to change. And so what frame of mind do you think Jesus is in at this point? Very solemn, very serious. I would, I would, I would imagine, yeah, that there's a lot of stress, that there's a lot of anxiety, that there's a lot going on there. Now, what frame of mind do you think the disciples are probably in? Scared? Maybe, maybe a lot of confusion um, because Jesus is going full Yoda in this moment, right? He's, he's laying things out for them and, and, and talking about all of these really big things. And they're not really able to wrap their minds around what is going to happen. And they don't really know. Uh, they haven't experienced it yet. But Jesus knows that things are going to be really tough. And when, you th when we think about it in, in this way, right, we look at the conversation that Jesus had with them about the Holy Spirit, and, and maybe we realize that Jesus knows exactly how difficult and hard all of this is going to be. And, and not, the, not just the crucifixion leading to the resurrection, those three awful days for them where they just... The world has changed, but even his leaving. And so Jesus is, has been trying to sort of build them up for these moments, to get them ready as much as he could for these times. So here's, we see in chapter 16 where, where he starts to, to move on a little bit and get back to what is immediately going to happen. So let's pick it up in 16, verses 16 through 24. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Okay, I love this insight here from John into the mind of the disciples, right? So this, this does clear it up for us a little bit, okay? What is their state of mind? They are confused. And what is it that they don't understand? They don't understand where Jesus is going. They don't understand why he's going anywhere at all. They don't understand time, uh, the time frame. And I, I love this. This is, such a, this is such a great observation that John gives us a window into. You're leaving for a little while. Well, how long is a little while? Right? What, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and why? It just gives us such great insight into where they are. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So that's, that's another great thing, right? They're asking, who are they asking these questions of? Hey, do you know what he means? No, I don't know what he means. Is he talking about this? I don't know. You know, like, there's just all this, there are these weird sub-conversations and Jesus being Jesus sees what's going on. Uh, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Okay, so what is it that Jesus wants them to know? And, he, and, it's, and it's interesting how it starts out, because it starts out, as we said, with this confusion and these statements and what's going on and how long is a little while. But the things that he wants to tell them we see here in this section are really important. And, and he lays it out for them in a way that hopefully, I, I hope they understood. But he says, you will mourn. You will grieve. And this will be happening while the world, what? Rejoices. Now, why is the world rejoicing? Because he's dead. And we remember from this conversation, right, who is the world? The world is, is anyone that stands in opposition to God. So Jesus is saying, your lives are going to be wrecked and the world is going to be happy about it. Meaning what? As they grieve, is there any comfort for them? No. As you grieve, as you mourn, there will be no comfort for you. But... Your grief will not last because your sorrow will be turned to joy. You will grieve and then you will rejoice. I love that word rejoice. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like a verb, you know? It's like it, there's action involved in it when you rejoice. You know, it's, it's something that you do. And, and it's the same with grieving. You know, grieving is is an action. You, there's a huge difference between being sad and grieving. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's a huge difference between being happy and rejoicing. And so they are going to go from one extreme to the other. From grief to this great and overwhelming joy that cannot be taken away from them. The Sorrow and pain of the crucifixion will not last. And as much as the disciples loved and were amazed by Jesus, Jesus wanted them to know that there is much more to come that they have not understood or wrapped their minds around. Because here's the thing, right? We know Jesus as the resurrected Lord. They don't even know he's going away yet. And they haven't seen him as the risen Lord. And Jesus' words are powerful in the sense that all of the access they have had to God through him is only going to grow once he goes through the crucifixion and the resurrection. Think about that for a second. They have been with the living Jesus and had access to everything that God has done with Jesus through this time. But Jesus tells them, look at those words again. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 
Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Understand what Jesus is talking about here. He's like, you're with me. You're with me all the time. But when this day comes, you're not going to ask me anymore. Why? One, he's not going to be there. (laughs) Okay? But two, Jesus is trying to tell them something is really changing. Because when he becomes the risen Lord, what happens? Their questions are answered, but they're, but they're answered in this different way. You will now not speak to me. Who will you speak to? You will then, you'll speak to the Father. And when you speak to the Father, whose name are you going to use? Mine, the risen Lord. That You, you don't know this yet, but the risen Lord. And when you ask the Father for things in the name of the risen Lord, what happens? You will be given what it is that you ask for. And that day, through the power of the risen Lord and the indwelling spirit, when they ask for things in the name of Jesus, they will be given those things by the Father. So do do you see the thread that is continuing here in this conversation? Jesus is looking ahead to what it's what it means for him to be the risen Lord, what it means for them to have the indwelling spirit. He needs to be crucified. He needs to raise from the dead. He needs to go away so that the helper will come. And in that day, everything that they think they know about God in life is going to change. All of this is going to lead them to a level of life with God that they have never experienced before. And the words at the end of this section are a powerful claim that only the risen Lord can make. From verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There is so much still to happen, so much that the disciples don't understand, but Jesus was on the cusp of changing the entire story. Everything was going to change and be different. He was going to change life for humanity forever. He was going to change the relationship between God and his people forever. He knew this. And he knew how difficult the next day was going to be for him in particular. But here's the crazy thing about all this. Remember, he is hours away from being arrested. But what is he thinking about in the book of John? He's thinking about his disciples And how all of this is going to be for them. And there is this, it's so hard to wrap my mind around, but it's this moment in time where Jesus is staring down this awful thing and what he is most concerned about is whether or not his disciples are going to make it through this. Whether they're going to make it through this. Now this becomes way more evident that this is where Jesus' mind is in chapter 17. So turn over there. And in chapter 17, this is a point where we've we've talked about this really early on. Uh, John's gospel is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, uh, there's a name. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they are uh, very much the same. They, They have a lot of the same passages. Mark is believed to have been written first. Uh, Matthew, it's believed that Matthew and Luke had 
the book of Mark that they used for some different, uh, as a resource when they were writing uh, Matthew and Luke. But John kind of stands apart on its own. It just, it has a different uh, feel. It has uh, different stories. There are things it leaves out and things that it puts in. And this is one of these moments where uh, John really goes in a different direction than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, at this point in the story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after uh, the Lord's Supper and all these different things, Jesus heads out to the garden. And he takes a few with him, and he ends up praying by himself, and he goes through this period of very, of just deep anguish. And these says this prayer of submission of his will to the will of God. And it's those passages in the garden from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are so emotional and display this really stressful time for Jesus, so much so that even for me, when I read about Jesus praying in the garden, it's stressful for me. You know what I'm saying? Um. And it shows a vulnerability in Jesus that we're not really used to seeing. Uh, he does not want to suffer and die on the cross. But more than that, he does want to do the will of the Father in all things. So he goes through these moments um, of praying with God, of pleading with God. Of, and then when the crowd comes to arrest him, he's, he's ready and in full control and doing what it is that that God wants him to do. But in the book of John, Jesus doesn't pray that prayer. He doesn't ask for the cup to pass. He doesn't ask for a different option. He still prays, though. But he, what he prayed for really communicates where the heart of God was in what was a very chaotic mess. Uh, so from chapter 17... Starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, so this is the start of Jesus' prayer. Um, what does he pray for here? He prays for glory. For who? For himself. He wanted the Son, himself, to be glorified. But he wanted to be glorified for a very specific reason. He wanted to be glorified so that God, the Father, would be glorified. Everything that Jesus did while he was here on earth, all of the teaching, all of the healing, all the, the stuff that he did, he did those things to bring glory to the Father. He knows that even though he will die and 
rise from the dead, he knows that he is actually not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. And Jesus is here on earth as an embodiment of the love of God. All of this that has been going on is God's doing, and Jesus wanted all the attention for what was going to happen, his crucifixion and his resurrection. He wanted that story to get out because what does that tell of? It doesn't tell about of how amazing Jesus is as much as it tells about how much God loves us that his son would come and die and raise from the dead. Jesus wanted to be glorified so that the whole world would know that God was the one writing the story, that God is the one who chose to overcome sin and death, that God is the one who was altering the course of humanity. And so all glory and honor and praise goes to the Father. And get this, the more people who know and glorify the Son, the more people will come to know the amazing love of the Father and glorify Him. Because Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. And everything that the Son does points to the Father. The Son, who will be stepped on and trampled by men, will return to his place in glory. And all that he had given up to be here with us will be restored to him. He will return to the Father as the victorious risen Lord, the testament to the goodness and love of the Father. So here's something crazy. Jesus is about to go do the most Jesus-y thing. He's going to sacrifice himself for us. But to him, it's not about what he's going to do and what he's going to experience. It's about what God is doing through this whole thing. And it reminds me in such a powerful way that where we sometimes mess up when we communicate our faith. Because it tells me if Jesus is saying the story is not about me, it's about God. Then when I read stories about what Christians have done or haven't done and the stories are about them, it, that's where we miss, you see. Because everything that we do should not be, we are not the story. It should not be about us. Everything that we do should bring glory to whom? To God, to the Father. Everything we do should bring glory to the Father. The story is always about God and what God is doing. And it's when the stories are about us that things go horribly wrong. You know? It's when the story is about us that people are, are frustrated with God and don't want to be like God's people. <laughs> And, and all these things come to light. But listen, God is the hero of our story, and we as Christians are not the heroes. It is never about us. It is always about God. And when people speak of us, it should not be about how great we are or how terrible we are or whatever. It should be about how good God is. 
And if God's story is not going out through us, then we need to change what it is that we're doing. Okay, so Jesus prays this, glory for himself so that the Father will be glorified. And then uh, he decides to pray for his disciples. So let's pick it up in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even I, as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay. In many ways, I am astounded by this prayer. Again, it's because Jesus is about to go to the cross and die this horrible death. But what is he most worried about? He's worried about how his disciples are going to handle everything that comes their way. And as difficult as the next day was going to be for them, he wanted his disciples to be okay. He wanted them to make it through all of this and to understand what God was doing. So he makes some important statements here in this prayer. And, and here's where it starts. The disciples were called out of the world by whom? By God. And, and God called them out of the world and Jesus says, you gave them to me. Now, this is so interesting because the disciples were not the kind of people that the world would have chosen to be on their strategic leadership team. Right? They were fishermen and tax collectors, and they just, they were not the best and the brightest. But God chose them. He called them out of the world and gave them to Jesus so that they would have the firsthand experience of all that God had to offer. So everything that Jesus got from the Father, who did he give it to? He gave it to the disciples. Everything that he got from the Father, he gave to the disciples. And they got all of this, and, and Jesus says they they believed. They believe in me. They know who I am. They have accepted all of this. Now, think about how important that had to be to Jesus. 
in this conversation that he's now having with God, but that we're still privy to here, he's saying, look, you've, you've laid all of this out. I have given this to them, and, and they, they have heard it, and they accept it, and they believe it. He really needed the disciples to be sure about who he is and what he was doing. He needed them to be sure about that. Why? Because everything they were about to experience was going to tell them that they're wrong. You, you get that? Everything they were about to experience was going to tell them that they were wrong. But there's more than that. Jesus is actually scared for them. Because he knows, well, what did he tell us back in chapter 16? You're going to be grieving and the world is going to be rejoicing. He knows that they are going to come under attack. And he knows that they're going to have to carry on without them. And, and it's, Jesus shows very little fear for himself because what does Jesus already know? He knows he's going to die and suffer, but what else does he know? He's going to be resurrected and he's going to return in glory to the Father. Um, in fact, he's already said it. I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world, but it's already done. I have overcome the world. But in this post-Jesus world, as he's looking forward to this, he knows that the disciples are going to be really vulnerable without him, and he's not going to be there to protect them anymore. The evil one can't get right at them when Jesus is standing there with them even though they still make mistakes and fail. Um, and and this, is, this is interesting. Jesus doesn't seem to know whether they'll actually make it through or not. Like, he's facing this very real moment where he knows that the next, the next events are going to be so difficult that they may give up. That they may, uh, who knows what they will choose to do? Who knows what path they will follow? Who knows what will happen to them? They might be arrested. I mean, he's at this moment, and, and, and he didn't know how it would turn out for them. He knew that, he knew he was going to be raised from the dead, and that would change things. He knew that the advocate and the helper would come. He knew how God wants to change the world, but he is at this moment of fear with them where there is so much they're going to have to face and so much that is unknown. And so he wants some things for them. One, he wants them to stick together, to be drawn together through the experience. So Jesus asked for that to happen. Draw them together. Give them unity. But then, and this is so, so crucial, he, he wants them to be sanctified by the truth. Now, what does it mean to sanctify something? Uh, its broad meaning is for sanctification is the process by which an entity is brought into relationship with or attains the, likely, the likeness of the holy. Makes perfect sense, right? That's what you were thinking when I said sanctify. I know. Sorry to steal your, the words out of your mouth. But here's basically what it means. Jesus is asking God 
to set them apart from the world. In fact, what does he say several times in this prayer? They are not of the world. They have been drawn out of the world. I'm not asking you to take them away from the world, but help them to survive this experience of being drawn out of it. Help them to be different, Jesus, just as Jesus was different. Now, here's the greatest part, though. What was going to sanctify them? What was going to draw them out of the world and keep them in God's hands? What is it? It's the truth. Okay? The truth is what is going to draw them out of the world and make this happen. It's the truth that is going to keep them strong in the face of the evil one. It's the truth, get this, that is going to protect them. The truth is going to protect them. What is the only thing that is going to help the disciples make it through everything they are going to have to face? It is the knowledge that Jesus is who he said he is. It is the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the conviction that he did come to this place to die and be raised again. And that reminds me that when Jesus was talking about the helper that would come, what did he often call it? The spirit of what? The spirit of truth is going to come to you to convince you that all of this is true. And, and Jesus even spells it out a little bit further for us. He says, your word is truth. Now in the book of John, when John talks about the word, guess what? Guess who that is? It's Jesus from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There it is, right at the beginning of the book of John. That, that Jesus is the word and the word is truth. And that truth and knowing who Jesus is, it's the light in the darkness. It's the joy that can't be taken away. It is what overcomes the world. Knowing Jesus, knowing the gospel, knowing it is true, knowing that it gives them victory. This is what is going to keep them moving forward into who God wants them to be. Because, again, what is the world going to tell them? That Jesus isn't who he said he was. The world is going to rejoice because it thinks it won. It thinks it has defeated God. It thinks that Jesus is gone forever. But that is not the truth. The truth is that Jesus is the risen Lord. Amen? Amen? The truth is that Jesus has overcome. The truth is that he lives. And it doesn't matter if they tell you you're wrong or stupid or foolish or crazy. Because guess what that is? A lie. A lie. It is not the truth. But knowing the truth is what is going to carry us through. And so after Jesus prays all of this, that they would be pulled out of the world, they would be sanctified by the truth, they would have this thing, they would make it through, Jesus then prays for everyone that would hear the message and believe. Starting in verse 20. 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. I want to focus just on one thing here as we close. When Jesus looked ahead to all that was coming, what was the last thing he prayed for? He prayed for unity. Um, he prayed that... Th- all those who would hear the message and believe would be drawn together by that message. And more than that, he, he, he prayed that all those who hear and believe would be drawn into who he is. And that when they were drawn into who he is, they would be drawn into who God is. And that, get this, so often we, we look at this and like, so this is why we shouldn't fight or argue. No, it is like way deeper than that. Because as the risen Lord, what is Jesus changing? It's on the wall, if you're, if you're wondering. Je- Jesus is changing everything. And get this, get this. Before the risen Lord, Jesus and the Father are one, but there's still separation between God and man. Why? Because sin is still a real problem. But when the risen Lord comes around, guess what happens to the division between God and man? It disappears. And all of a sudden now, everyone is going to be drawn together by Jesus. And, and, and they're drawn together by Jesus and they're drawn into Jesus. And by being drawn into Jesus, who else are they drawn into? The Father. God and his people are one. Remember, what is it that God, when, from, our, from our study in the story, what is it that God wants? In that day, I will be your God, and you will be my people. All of us will be drawn in through the work of Jesus to the Father. Everything that will happen is going to point to the Father and bring everyone into relationship with God. will bring everyone into relationship with God, the Father, the one who loves them and created them and cares for them. And all of this really reminds me of the point of all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is it that Jesus wanted 
What is it that Jesus thought about as he went to the cross? He thought about us. He thought about the overwhelming love of God. That said, I will not leave my people alone to die and be destroyed. I will send them a savior. And on the other side of this cross is an empty tomb. On the other side of this failure is redemption. On the other side of this grief is joy. Praise God that he has done this for us. Praise God that he loves us in this way. Praise God that we have the opportunity to love others, to love others and to introduce them to the God who has gone further than any God ever should, but has done it because he loves us. Praise God that he has looked forward, (laughs) that there is a risen Lord, that there is a helper. Praise God that he wants to live inside of us and help us be more through his power. Praise God that he doesn't leave us to figure all this out on our own. Praise God that he doesn't leave us to our own devices. Praise God that we know Jesus. That we have a Redeemer and a Savior. And that our lives are forever changed. And the world may stand against us, but Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... I I don't even... It doesn't, there's, no, there's nothing that I can say to express what you have, gratitude for what you have done for us, God. The way that you have loved us and cared for us, the life that you choose to give us, the freedom that we have. God, we want everything we do to bring glory to you. We don't want the story to be about us. We want the story to be about how you love your people how you are calling everyone to forgiveness and grace and redemption. May everything we do tell that story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have any needs this morning, uh, whatever it is that we can do as a family to support you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.